Hello everyone, welcome to the Optive Podcast. It's a podcast where John Segatowski, Nick Gibson, and me, Andy Schmidt, discuss some of the hard theological and cultural topics in the Bible, bringing three different perspectives from three different generations. I hope you enjoy. Today, we're going to be talking about the gifts of the Spirit. It's going to be, it's going to be a good one. Um, I got I got a text from from somebody who was like, "You guys need to talk about this." Actually, more specifically, he was like, "You need to ask Nick about this." But uh, so, <laughs> so I'm I'm glad to be here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and by a text, you mean hundreds of texts from uh, yeah. almost <laughs> every almost every country. Yes, all every country. saying I need to hear Nick talk about this. That's exactly correct. <laughs> So the people spoke and we listened. Um, so I will read through the text and then and then I will read text. First Corinthians. Yes, the thousands of texts. So it's going to be a long one. Um, and then I'll read First Corinthians 1, 12, or 12, 1 through 11. So the text that I got said, um, it's, I'm just going to read it. You should ask Nick about or what it actually means to have spiritual gifts. Like if you don't have if you don't have the gift of prophecy, does that mean you can't say anything prophetic or or you can't as frequently? Are gifts like prophecy and speaking in tongues the same as administration? How does that work? If you can't speak in tongues unless uh, unless you have the gift, does that mean you can't do administration unless you have the gift? And so we're just gonna go through the gifts, kind of all of them, and talk through them some of them for more time than others, and hopefully answer that question. But I will now read 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11, which I have up. Um, I Oh, do I read out of the NLT? No, I'll read out of the ESV, even though it's harder to pronounce. <laughs> um, <laughs> so 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 1 through 11 says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, gifts but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the, of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is, a, is given the Spirit of utterance of wisdom, and another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the same by one, the one spirit. To another, the works of miracle. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by the one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he will. So that is... The passage. There's a lot of stuff there. Um, so we will just get into it. When I read it last night, I read it in the NLT. So my questions are are asked 
or written as as if we just read the NLT. And I know that that's not the best one, but for me, I love the NLT. So, um, so my my first question was when Paul's talking about special knowledge, it what does that what does that mean? What is special knowledge? Um, like he says in here in in this version, it says um, the. The right. utterance there, of knowledge. Yeah, the utterance of knowledge. Is that just knowledge in general or what what does that really mean? And also, I guess we should probably back up and just be like, what are these gifts for? And do they still apply today? Because I think there is an argument that some pastors might might say. I think I've heard that like these gifts don't still apply in our modern time. So what do you guys think on that? John, sorry, I was looking at that. Um, you mean that you're going to soon get married to the pastor's daughter of a fairly charismatic church that believes very strongly in the continuation of these gifts? I wonder what you could sure. possibly think. I, uh, sorry, Andy, what was the question again? So I was saying that, well, one, do these do these gifts still apply in my, today? Do they still apply? Or what was Paul talking about when he when he wrote this? And two, like, how do we use these gifts? Or like, yeah. So you can answer the first one. Yeah. So I mean, I think the the first thing to look at is in this passage, what it says is in verse seven: "To each is given a man, the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good." So that seems to be the purpose that Paul is giving for these spiritual gifts, that the spiritual gifts are meant to be used for the common good of one another, that the reason that the spirit is giving these things is so that we can, um, can build one another up in these various different ways. So that seems to be, at least in this passage, the reason like quote unquote reason for the spiritual gifts. I think um, to me, I, I see no reason like, the only reason I see for the belief in the kind of like discontinuation of spiritual gifts is just because people haven't seen those things today. I see no, I see no biblical reason why that would be the case. Like, I, I don't know. So I think, I think spiritual gifts do continue to today. Um, I don't think there's any indication saying like, okay, spiritual gifts are going to stop after a certain amount of time or are going to stop after the apostles die or are going to stop like after the early church is established. Um, so mm-hmm. I think spiritual gifts do continue to apply today. I think all these things are still true today. I think there are, there is still people uttering wisdom, people uttering knowledge, people healing one another. I mean, we've seen, we've seen things like that happen at high point church. We've seen like there was a, there's a young woman who had a had a large cyst on her ovary and that was like medically checked out and they went in to to do surgery on the ovary and like before doing that realized okay the the cyst which at one point was if i remember correctly nick you can you can tell me if this is true if i remember correctly they were saying it was the size of a grapefruit was just gone and we had been praying for her as a church and like she was healed. Um, so was that, I do think that, 
the pot was that the one what this is talking about the power to be able to heal or was that just a bunch of people in the church praying and god decided he went is there a difference between that you know that seems like like one person coming and healing somebody is different than the whole church coming together and praying for somebody yeah i mean it's it's tough because be, just because of the way that particular situation worked out was there were a lot of people praying for her there were a lot of people who did lay hands on her and like ask yeah. for healing um but she so, didn't she so, didn't feel it happen at one particular right, moment right right it, it was just so, gone we, yeah we've had another one there was a, a young girl um rachel kutzinger when she was like two she was going to have to have surgery on her skull because her skull wasn't expanding sufficiently for her brain at her age and it was going to be like a really terrible surgery and um we prayed for her and then she went to the doctor and she was completely better and she's never had any issues with that since that I know of. There's a, there's a number of, there's a number of, um, of stories like that. We've had people who suffer f- with migraines for more than a decade and then they just stopped when they were prayed for. I mean, that's a little harder, I think, for, pe- for people who are naturally skeptical empirically to be like, well, yeah, you know, pain, that's a hard one. But I mean, yeah, but, th- but the person had been debilitated for a decade and then they weren't. So you could argue it's psychosomatic, I guess, but that, I mean, that to me, that feels as, as, prejudiced as believing that it was God's healing, you know? So, um, yeah. So the, the view that Andy you're referring to is, is usually referred to in the, in what well, used to be referred to in literature as cessationism. That is that the gift ceased. I, I think somewhere along the way to get a little less angry about it, people started calling it discontinuationism or something like that. I don't know, John, what you're getting in stuff you're reading in seminary now. But yeah, just, most, of, most of what I've heard is still cessationism. Cessationism, yeah. Yeah, that's just the idea that the gift ceased at a particular point. Usually that right. it, that is wrapped up either around the canonization of the New Testament, that when the word of God written was completed, that the word of God ecstatic or intuitive was no longer the fundamental way in which we we heard and interacted with God's word, and we were intended to interact with God's word written in the scriptures. Um, and usually that's also wrapped up with some kind of theory that God has gone through like seven cycles of prophetic revelation to human beings, like Noah, Abraham, the times, the times of David, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus, and then the apostles or something like that. And then it, it's kind of like, because, because it, it is true that there doesn't seem to be an equal amount of prophetic activity throughout all the eras of God's work. And what we have recorded in the Bible is a concentration. I mean, like if you look at the Bible and you say, well, is this how God speaks at every moment? Well, the the Bible is a record of the best moment of like the most critical moments of God's activity. Right. And so it is true that, you know, there were times when there wasn't an Elijah or there wasn't an Elisha. Right. But there were a lot of prophets and and God had people to be his spokesman when he needed it, but it didn't seem to be a common occurrence in, in the lives of everybody. But at the same time, during the time of Elijah and Elisha, there could be things called the schools of the prophets. And when, when Samuel or when not Samuel, when Saul, the Holy spirit came on Saul, he prophesied among the prophets. So there were like these groups of people who were prophets who had come together around that gift or ability that God had given them. So there's, there's material in the Bible to argue in a few different ways on this. But the cessationist argument over time just hasn't really held up. One of the reasons why it was so strongly motivated is if you go back to the, like the 60s and 70s especially, but even into the 80s and 90s, even a little bit today, like 
the cares the care the charismatic side the people who charismatic comes from the word um charisma or charism which is a greek word that means gift it's the word used in this passage for gifts and so charismatics are people who believe in these gifts and their operativeness in, in the present some of these folks did some crazy 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 stuff mm-hmm. and it was stuff that um people on the cessationist side of things thought was very disorderly and destructive and some people even felt like it was demonic that they weren't actually discerning between spirits, that they were being carried away by evil ones. And it was destroying the witness of the church and the work of Christ and so on, that it was an anti-spiritual movement, not a deeply spiritual one. And I think you can believe that in any particular case and not believe in cessationism though. Look, I've seen a lot of charismatic stuff. I didn't think so. I didn't think it was of God. And I, but that doesn't lead me to believe that these things ceased. It just leads me to believe that the, the discernment isn't, really operative here because believing in spirit and the spirit, the Holy spirit and the Holy spirit doing work doesn't mean you're any good at it. I mean, those are different things, right? I mean, it's important to recognize, and it's important to recognize that. And there's a reason why in both first Corinthians 14, and I think it's in first John, there's specific emphasis on like not forbidding these gifts, but also discerning and judging them, right? They're, they're not just supposed yeah. to flip everywhere. The elders are supposed to get in there and, and direct them, but they were clearly part of the activity of the local church in first Corinthians 11, for example, um, Paul talks about the inv- inviting women to prophesy um, because prophecy is something both men and women did. Both were invited to do it, and it was clearly a normal part of the worship service. Um, people would come up and give these exhortations, and um, and then they were judged by the elders. And that was like that was at least as prominent as preaching. And also, it was egalitarian. So, like um, at High Point, our elders are all men, and they do like the authoritative doctrinal teaching of God's word, right? But if you had gone to a first century church, so that that probably still would have been the case, there also would have been space in the sermon service for women to get up and exhort the whole church through the gift of prophecy. So um, sometimes I, my concern about us not having it is not like that we don't have that spiritual gift operating, but that we don't actually have the widest place possible for women to teach and exhort the church as we could. Um, in my view, the like knockdown drag out verse that defeats cessationism is in first Corinthians 13. So chapter 12 is about all the gifts and how the spirit gives all of them and he gives them all to create one body. Chapter 14 is about the judging of prophecy and how that ought to work between those two chapters about spiritual gifts is chapter 13, which is about love. The context is not marriage. The context is like that. If you don't have love operating, when you use these things called spiritual gifts, they're going to create a lot more harm than good. And it's going to be a lot of problems, right? So as he's talking about love and what love is like, like in verse eight, it says this, love never fails. And then it says this, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy prophesy in part, but when completeness comes or perfection comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I taught like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Now we see only a refre- reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part then I shall f- know fully, even as I am fully known. So what the apostle is saying is, is that these gifts are going to stop. The question is, when is he referring to? Right. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to argue that passage consistently and to mean anything other than the return of Christ. Right. He says, he says, um, now I know in part, 
then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So what he's saying is there's a day that I will know Jesus the way Jesus knows me. I will see him with absolute complete clarity. Now that look, that's Frank, that's just not going to happen. The, the, the canonization of the new Testament did not do that. Only the return of Christ and seeing him face to face will do that. And so what this passage I think very clearly means is that what's being discussed, both the need of love and the need of love in relationship to the impart gifts of these spiritual gifts is that they will continue until the return of Christ. And so if you think they've stopped and you're a Christian, it should mean that in some weird way you think Christ has already returned, which is weird and also very difficult to sustain biblically. Okay. <clears throat> so, so then so, for, so I think it's important to say, look, you can think charismatics are weird and do weird stuff and do yeah. stuff they shouldn't to do, but not be a cessationist. Yeah. You know, you don't I have mean, to, I'm, you have to turn your distaste in, or your discernment into an ideology. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm skeptical. I, and, and I think we're going to do an, another podcast about the charismatic church more specifically, but I was going to ask because I see this like, like for young Christians in like college age Christians, there's this huge movement in like speaking in tongues and the gifts of, and of the spirit and the charismatic movement for young Christians because they're like obsessed with it. And it, that's, that scares the crap out of me because I think, I think they're they're grasping onto the gifts and more of what it can do for them than actually the gospel and what Jesus did for us. But I think um, my my next question would be then how how do you know what gift you have? <clears throat> Sorry, Matt. how do you know like what gift you have? And do people only have one gift, or how many gifts do you get, or do people not have any? Are some people just giftless? Or like, how can you identify what your strength is so then you're not trying to do something that you shouldn't be trying to do? Yeah, I just want to make clear for some of our listeners that I didn't say anything about what you said about the charismatic church just because that's what we're talking about right now on the podcast. So if there's like Chi Alpha people listening and they're like, well, Andy clearly doesn't. I mean, that's not, I don't think that's what Andy's saying. It's not what I'm saying. So just, you'll have to stay tuned for that podcast. But, yeah. But uh, I, we believe, I mean, these, it says in first Corinthians 12, the very chapter we're in um, that we should seek the spiritual gifts or the greater gifts. And it's referring in this case to spiritual gifts. So there's actually an imperative in this passage that says that it, verse 31 is translated in that old NIV now eagerly desire the greater gifts. It's the Teo. It's like seek zealously and it's referring to these gifts. And so, and then he says, and yet I will show you the most excellent way, meaning you should seek these gifts earnestly. And yet you should seek to receive them and use them in accordance with love. That is for the common good and for others and their good. Right. So I don't, I don't want people to get the idea. I think that people who aren't charismatic maybe need to emphasize on the first part of that verse. Look, this says to eagerly desire these gifts. They're very good things. Right. Mm -hmm. And then people who are charismatic and like seeking the gifts and you're like, are you really seeking them for other, the good of others, the common good? Are you seeking them for what they can do for you? Then they need the second half of that verse. And yet, I will show you the most excellent way, meaning the way about these things referring to chapter 13, which is love. So mm -hmm. I think that, um, I think the, I th God has done a really good job of giving us balanced teaching on this. If we'll just listen to it. Okay. So y your question was, um, how do you know what you have and that sort of thing? Yeah. And yeah. So, um, I, I think that, that the question that sort of precedes that is 
what 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 is one of these gifts like how 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 is it how is it does it exist and then you might have a, a clear idea of how you know you received it right so I, I think first you're on the right track that the text says that these are gifts of the spirit and this and the spirit gives them sovereignly and deliberatively okay that's really important because there are some charismatics that believe that everybody can speak in tongues and everybody can prophesy and i think first corinthians 12 explicitly says that that isn't true mm-hmm. it says that the holy spirit himself distributes them as he sees fit right and the fact that the apostle paul says later i wish everybody i wish all of you could speak in tongues is not a spiritual teaching that we all can that he's like, you know, you all can. I just wish you would. What he's saying is, is that the gift of speaking in tongues has been a great blessing to him. And in it is a significant amount of spiritual encouragement and power. And because it has that good, he wishes that good or blessing on everybody, though he has already just said in chapter 12, you not everybody's going to speak in tongues. Right. In fact, that's literally what the, ver- the, the, the questions at, at verse 29 are all prophets are all apostles are all teachers do all work miracles do all have gifts of healing do all speak in tongues those um those questions in verses 29 and following um are rhetorical questions and the answer is of course not and i've had some people say well nick can't they just can't they be rhetorical questions and the answer is of course yes right like and the answer is well no not if you read them in context the whole point of them is the spirit is giving them deliberately not deliberatively not to everyone Right. But then in addition to that, the, the actual Greek construction of each of those words is um, the word for the gift and the Greek, um, the Greek word may, moonun, which means not. So it means, so it literally says, um, all not apostles, question mark, not prophets, all not prophets, all not teachers, all not workers of miracles or, or empowered. And so like the use of that Greek word, which means not, is specifically indicating in the Greek language that that the presumption in the rhetorical question is no. And that doesn't come across in the English very well, but it is very, very obvious in the Greek. And so um, you can see this in the New American Standard. Are not all apostles, are not, are, all, all are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? So the NA, the NAS comes up with a little stiffer translation, as it always does, um, but a more accurate one. And so there's clearly Paul is explicitly saying not everybody has them. So you so you can't know that you have them by presuming you have them, right? Um, you can presume from First Corinthians twelve that the Holy Spirit is giving gifts. He will give you a gift, at least one, maybe multiple gifts, right? But there's but there isn't a sense of like possession, like a degree or something like, like you got a degree in prophecy. Like, so you, once you get it, you'll have the rest of your life. That's all there is to it. There tends to be continuity in the gifts, but there's nothing in this text itself that says it must be that way. Except for the fact that the idea is, is that if you're functioning as a part of the body, that there would be a normativity, like the knee stays the knee and the calf stays the calf and the foot stays the foot so that there's continuity in how the body functions together. And I think that that's one of the reasons why God normally gives continuity to these gifts. Okay. So some of these gifts, um, you know, you have them because they happen. So if you pray for people to be healed and they get healed, like strangely frequently, that's, I mean, that's usually one of the only ways you can figure out you have the gift of healing is you pray for people to be healed. In fact, most of these, you have to try them 
right? So uh, in speaking in tongues and in prophecy, there has always been some controversy in my lifetime over how you find out you have these. Because some people say you just do them and you kind of see how it goes. That's the sort of the more, I don't want to say hyper charismatic, but like I would say maybe deliberately charismatic, like people are really focused on the idiom of using these gifts, finding them and and distributing them and like activating them. Like, so I wouldn't say, for example, that charismatic churches are churches that are like crazy about these gifts. I think what makes a church a charismatic church is that they are very deliberate about discovering and activating these gifts and utilizing them in the shared ministries of the church as much as possible. That's my definition of care. Not, not people who believe in these gifts, but believe them in that way. Because I would say that like High Point Church believes in that because we believe the Bible and scripture and we believe that that's what it teaches. And so we believe people have these gifts and then people do use them at High Point. But in the idiom of how we do ministry, I'm, I don't constantly try to get people in front of you giving prophetic words, for example. Or we don't include speaking in tongues as a fundamental part of our service or those sorts of things. That's what makes us not a, quote, charismatic church. But it's not because we're against them or anything. It's a, it's a decision about what to emphasize and what we were meant to emphasize, if that makes sense. Yeah, but like for, for you, like I'm thinking about like the gift of special knowledge. And I'm like, okay, yeah, Nick's smart, but you also just studied a lot. Like, yeah. like at what point, because I think people are going to, they can really confuse these things. Or like one of them that really confused me in the NLT, it said the gift of great faith. And great, what does that even mean? Everybody has faith. What is a great faith? Right. I mean, even more confusing is that in this, in other translations, it's just the gift of faith. Yeah. Right. Some people just have, like, some people just don't have faith. Right. I don't know. What does that mean? Like, yeah, I guess let's get into what each, like, kind of what these ones mean. Well, I just have a quick I have a quick question for you, Nick, um, is just the one thing that I have heard um, a couple of times is the like people sort of combining this passage then with um, I can't remember which gospel it's in, but the passage where where Jesus is talking about how, you know, God gives good gifts. Like if you ask your if you ask your father for yeah, bread, he would give you a snake. Yeah. Like so what is the. So, so because of that, we can assume that if we ask God for spiritual gifts, he's got like, and especially, especially I've heard this as it pertains to the gift of speaking in tongues, because that's, at least in my experience, that seems to be the one that, um, charismatic churches are most concerned about everybody being able to have. Yeah. Um, and that's a huge, that's a huge problem and in, in issue in charismatic churches is the overemphasis is presuming to emphasize that gift. And it, it comes from the, the Pentecostal movement and that, so, so m- most people don't know this, but in the history of the church, there are, there are a number of revivalist movements. The, rev- the revivalist movements tended to be more charismatic. And so um, th- there was, there's always been emphasis in the Christian church of how do you know you're saved or how do you know God is working? Right. And in the Wesleyan movement, which is the, the movement that preceded the American charismatic movement, it was um, the experience of love shed abroad in the heart and um, immediate sanctification or not immediate sanctification, but complete sanctification. So the idea would be that God saves you. You have this experience of love shed abroad in your heart. That is that you feel the overwhelming love of God and a sense of your real justification. Um, somewhat in line with Wesley's experience at Aldersgate that he felt his heart strangely warmed that he realized Christ had died for him. Right. And then like the real, real, 
operation of sanctification, specifically working out in the love of others, which is exceedingly biblical, right? Um, as people develop that that doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the operative work of the Holy Spirit, in once the once the Pentecostal movement started, they said, yeah, but the operative effect of the Holy Spirit immediately in the Book of Acts was these gifts, right? And so, if you've been saved and if you receive the Holy Spirit, you will receive these gifts. And in the Book of Acts, if you look, there's five times where the Holy Spirit descends on people in power, um, in response to them getting saved or something like that. And in four of those cases, it explicitly says that they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now, of, now if you're careful there exegetically, it's ambiguous what that exactly means. What it means is some portion of those people spoke in tongues and some portion of those people prophesied such that the, the operation of those two gifts were prominent in what was happening by the Spirit. It doesn't literally mean literally every person spoke in tongues and literally every person prophesied. And, and the text doesn't say every. It just says they. Right. And in, in all language, but in obviously in the Greek language, that can refer to some portion such that the operation of the thing was prominent in your experience if you were there. You would have been like, oh, these people, these, these people are speaking in tongues. It doesn't mean every single person was speaking in tongues, right? Right. So within that movement, there came this belief that um, receiving the Holy Spirit with the visible evidence of speaking in tongues was fundamental to what they called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And there was a yeah. misunderstanding in that movement that the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the Gospels referred to a second act of grace right. after right. accepting Jesus. And New Testament scholars have pretty soundly rejected that, about as soundly as they've rejected cessationism. Because mm-hmm. it's just it, it's not the right way to interpret the Bible. The, the, right. the, the use of the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit in every context, and ex- I think maybe except for one, I can't remember now. It's been a year since I've done this research, um, refers to conversion. Mm-hmm. That in conversion, one of the things that you receive is the Holy Spirit. And you are, you are baptized in the Spirit, meaning you fully re- do receive the Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't have a subsequent experience of the power of the Holy Spirit that seems like a whole second thing, mm-hmm. right? Some people, like in, in the book of Acts, one of the people groups of people who receive the Holy Spirit just have never even heard of the Holy Spirit. So they've heard of Jesus, and they're like, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Well, it turns out if you don't even tell people about the Holy Spirit, they don't believe in him, and like mm-hmm. they don't recognize his operation, right? And so then when they were told about the Holy Spirit, they like had this huge experience with him. And so sometimes I think what leads people to having these like incredible second experiences of the Holy Spirit is they hear the rest of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And when they hear the rest of the gospel, they believe the rest of the gospel. And then God becomes operative in that. That is the Holy Spirit works and he works in some of these ways. So I think that, I think that a biblical Christian who's trying to interpret the Bible as clearly as possible will reject cessationism as a not, as a, a doctrine that does not follow this teaching of scripture, but they'll also re- reject second filling theology. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is part of the heritage of salvation itself and is received at conversion. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a growth over time. And in that growth over time, a, a, a deeper filling of the Spirit relative to our maturity. John Stott said it this way, and John Stott actually didn't believe that speaking in tongues was still operative. But when, in his book, Baptism in Fullness, he said it this way. He said, if you imagine a child growing, right, they could breathe in as an infant and fill their lungs. And their lungs were filled. They're filled with air. But there's not a lot of air in there because their lungs are tiny, right? But as they grow into an adult, when they breathe in, they're, you know, they're taken four or five times with the air and their lungs are still full, right? And he said, I think that there's a growth in spiritual maturity that can happen in human beings so that the fullness of the spirit looks different. 
it looks more mature. It even looks more powerful. But it doesn't mean that when you were young in the faith, you weren't filled with the Holy Spirit. There was something about your spiritual lungs that in your sanctification and maturity that just hadn't filled out yet. And as they did, your capacity to operate in the Spirit's power grew. I, I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, that's not a teaching of Scripture, but I think the idea that fullness doesn't always look the same is true. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I think we all receive the Holy Spirit at salvation, at conversion. And then what happens is like you have to get in touch with it, kind of. Like he's he's the, the spiritual presence of God, and he's doing things inside of you. And you have to experientially and, and in some ways experimentally kind of get in touch with that. And it starts with knowing that he has shed abroad certain gifts. And so, so some of these gifts are operative in you. Who knows what they are? Let's find out, right? Sometimes I think you just do them and you, you don't even know you're doing them. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they receive an increased spiritual power. I think the gift of teaching is often like this. I mean, that's how it was for me. I wanted to study God's word. I wanted to know him better. As I got to know him better, I would start sharing things with people. Turned out I shared things with people they didn't know and that they thought was clear and helpful and moving. And that increased their devotion and it helped their faith. And then I saw that over and over and people started saying things like, man, this is so helpful. Or you're going to be a great pastor. Or this is like, have you ever preached a sermon? Like people started recognizing the like the dynamic of the gift. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed doing it. And I enjoyed doing what it takes to do it, which is study and reflection and spiritual growth. Right. And so through that, I discerned that I had a gift of teaching that was significant. Right. Mm-hmm. So that that's like, see, that's kind of a story or a process and it includes other people affirming it and so on. Right. But it also right. included me starting to do it. Right. Um, so uh, Jean Collins, who worked at High Point for a while, said that she thought that I might have the gift of prophecy and just didn't really know it because she said, you, you say things that are prophetic and you don't realize they're prophetic and like they happen and they matter and they change the course of things. And, I don't really know what to do with that because I sometimes I, I, I can't really tell if it's I think that if I have a, another spiritual gift, it's some form of spiritual discernment hmm. and that that looks like prophecy. But I'm not, I'm not really sure. So going back to what Andy said about like words of knowledge, and words of wisdom, if you if you if you look at the gifts and you say, like, well, what are they? Mm-hmm. Um, the answer is, is that in the text of the Bible, they are referred to extremely generically. That's important because sometimes you'll go to like um charismatic churches and they'll say oh well it means this and they'll give you this like really technical like we know so much more than everybody else kind of definition and most of that is experiential like i i think i think i've had this conversation with tom flaherty your soon-to-be father-in-law who is a, a wise and well-learned prominent charismatic pastor in, in our city I, i'm said, trying to get him on the the charismatic church podcast that'd be great you, yeah, yeah. You, you'll love him um yeah you should yeah so um but one of the things I've asked him, as I said, okay, Tom, let me get this straight. Most of the stuff we know that you're saying different than me is stuff that you've learned doing this, like experiencing it, not reading the Bible and discerning it. And and I, I, if I remember correctly, he, he was one of the – I've asked that question to a number of charismatics. And, and a lot of them, especially if I have them alone, will say, oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we don't, we don't do something that the Bible doesn't say. Like we don't, we don't go against the Bible, but the Bible doesn't say a lot of specifics about this. Its language is fairly general. And so we, we enter that generality and then we experience it more specifically. And then what we feel like we consistently experience, we feel like we can teach. So mm-hmm. if somebody sees a lot of people receiving the gift of speaking in tongues, they tend to begin to think that that gift is normative. And so they think a lot more people can receive it than you think. And then it's easy to start saying that, that it can happen for everybody. Right. 
or that everybody can prophesy. And sometimes all people mean by that, it's not literally every single person, but way more people than you think. Right. And I right. think that's true. I think that, right. I think that like, if, if you, if we had Jesus on the podcast and we we're like, Jesus, what percentage of total possible operation we're, are we operating on? Are you working on getting him on? Yeah, we're yeah. Get him. yeah that'd be great. Um, if you ask Jesus, like, what what percentage of operation are we operative at with the amount of spiritual gifts you, through the person of the Holy Spirit, are willing to give us? I mean, I think he'd say something less than 10%, probably. Mm-hmm. He'd say, yeah, there's just not any faith. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, 9%, 6%. He wouldn't be like, oh, 94%. I really doubt that's the answer, you know? So because I, so I think that there is this, I think that's where I think charismatics are right. You have to pursue this stuff and you have to believe it's there and it requires faith. Now, everything requires faith in the Christian faith, like everything overcoming suffering and, and turning from sin, but also pursuing all of the good gifts that God would give you. Right. Yeah. And you said before, John, about that passage in Luke about God, the father giving his children good gifts. The literal moral of that story is the Holy spirit. Like it literally says at the end of that parable, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those right. who ask him? I mean, that is what this parable is about. Right. And the assumption is, is that God is a good father. He will give good gifts. And the the best gift you can ask for that he will absolutely give you is the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Right. So Christians should be asking for a better dynamic with the Holy Spirit. I mean, people, charismatics usually just say more. God, give us more. Give us more. Give us more. I don't, I don't even know sometimes what that means, what they mean by that, but they, they just mean like, they mean something like yeah. they mean something more than what they've experienced. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I don't think that's a bad prayer. I think it can be a repetitive, thoughtless prayer sometime, not really knowing what you're asking them for and what you really want is more experience. Like I think what Andy was getting at when he wants more sanctification, more repentance, things like that, mm-hmm. or for you to actually deal with your problems and he wants to lead you through that. So that, that, that can happen. Okay. So, um, looking at the specific references. So for example, the, um, the message of wisdom or the word of wisdom, it literally says in Greek, logos sophias, just the generic word for word and the generic word for wisdom, word of wisdom. That's it. That's all it says. You're left to intuitively get from that what that is. Because remember, Paul isn't introducing the Corinthians to these gifts. He assumes they already know what they are. The, he's not the point. He's, he's not making the point. Hey, there's this gift. It's called the word of wisdom. What he's saying is, listen, you guys already know the Holy Spirit gives gifts. Here's what you're not getting, right? That the gifts are given diversely. I mean, the, the point in these verses is not to tell us what gifts of the Holy Spirit exist. The point in these verses is to tell us that the that, that the Spirit, God the Spirit, gives diverse gifts to all kinds of different people, and He distributes them just as He wants. The the, the main word operative word here is to one. That's the main concept in the verse. To one person, God gives this gift. To another, he gives this. To another, he gives that. That's the main point in these verses. So if people say, these are the spiritual gifts, these nine or something, that's just not true. Mm-hmm. There's three There's three lists, lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. None of them are identical with each other, and none of them completely overlap with one another. I think the other one is in Romans 12, and then another one is in, I think, First Peter. Stop points this out in his book, Baptism in Fullness. He's like, these are all exemplary lists. They're not complete lists. Right. That's why when you get people saying, I have the spiritual gift of something else, and you're like, that's not in the Bible. They're not necessarily wrong. Mm-hmm. 
that that's their spiritual gift. I mean, your body has all kinds of weird parts. And if I said, what are some body parts? You wouldn't be like, well, you know, my pericardium, <laughs> right? So there may be some like really minority report kinds of gifts right. that right. you could have that the Holy Spirit is using in you. Like some people have very specific gifts of encouragement. It's like a sub gift of a sub gift of the gift of encouragement or the gift of helps is mentioned somewhere. It's like you have the gift of being helpful. Okay. Well, yeah. that could be anything, right? <laughs> you know, but like, but like if you just have a nose to smell where, when people need help or mm -hmm. right. Does that make sense? So in one sense, I think it's important not to get too, too like I know it all about what these gifts are referring to. Right. The word, a word of wisdom simply means a word is a, is a message. Logos means message. Right. Um, so there's, so there's content related to it and it is of wisdom. That is, it's some kind of truth. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but it's not the next one, which is logos gnosis, gnosis, which is, that's literally knowledge. So a word of knowledge would be probably would be a message that you receive somehow where you have knowledge that you wouldn't otherwise know, but by the oper operation of the spirit. Because mm -hmm. it literally says the word of knowledge in accordance with the spirit or by the means of the spirit. So the way I would, I would describe this psychologically is in your intuitive mind rather than your deliberative mind, right? So you're the, where you just know stuff and you don't know where you know it from part of your mind rather than the thinking through facts and trying to work it out rationally. In that intuitive part of your mind, you just know something. And then you share it and it turns out to be true. And people are like, how did you know that? That's word of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Some people just have that. And, and, that, and, you, is, and, and that you're allowed to test. You can say, hey, I, I feel like I know this. And you would say it to a group of Christians. You'd say like, does that do anything for anyone? And you would see. And if people go, oh yeah, that really, that's me. Okay. And I know that can feel kind of horoscopish to people. Um, and, and in some charismatic churches, it does feel that way because the messages are so general. Like, God knows somebody in this room tonight is hurting. Is that you? Are you that person? Well, if you get two people in a room, you've got somebody who's hurting. You know what I mean? Like, right. so, but at the same time, if you thought, what would be God's pastoral message to people? Well, I see that you're hurting is one that he would have a lot. So sometimes it's very hard to distinguish between what is just generically true and what is literally word of knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. But there have been people, like you've probably heard about this, like a, a, somebody saying, okay, God wants to speak to somebody. This is your phone number. And they'll recite a phone number. And somebody like, that's that's my phone number. You know, it's like, okay, I have a word for you. <laughs> like that, That's a word of knowledge, right? I, those are very rare in my, in my experience, much rarer than we would like them to be. Word of wisdom, I think, would be to know the right advice or truth to tell, tell at a very specific time motivated yeah. by the spirit in your intuitive mind rather than your deliberative mind. So that'd be different than me teaching and like reading the Bible and saying, look, here's what I should teach. I think this is wise according to the word of God written. A word of wisdom would say, would be like in your intuitive mind, you know something, but instead of it being like somebody's phone number, mm -hmm. it's like a truth that just needs to be shared right now. And you don't know why, but you think that it's important that people hear it. And you would receive that kind of like in your intuitive mind, quote by the spirit yeah does that make sense so why would you my um why would you i've heard a different interpretation of of those two specifically being like okay what what paul is trying to do in this passage is he's trying to he's trying to make clear to the corinthians that like there are gifts that are very like ordinary that aren't that aren't like 
operative yeah. in some kind of like very ecstatic way. And then there are these, and then there are also gifts that are operative in like very ecstatic, very like obvious, very like quote unquote strange ways. And so what, what God is trying to do is he's trying to like, this is, this is a part of like bringing everybody into the gifts of, to like the gifts of the Holy Spirit thing in pointing out what people already have. Um, like, I, I know this is the, some of this yeah, is the argument. You certainly like, can't disprove that from this text. Right. Okay. Those words can definitely mean that. They, it could be a reference to two very generic kind of like somebody just has something wise to say. Somebody has just something of knowledge to say, but because it says by the means of the spirit, that's where you, that's where yeah. you get the question of like, is he trying to say that you, it's a, it's a word that's empowered by the spirit in a special way mm-hmm. that you recognize, or is it what you're saying? Yeah. You can't prove either one of those. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk about, um, speaking in tongues a little bit more. And when I, uh, so I have a question that say, I've heard many people talk about speaking in tongues. I've never actually heard anybody speak in tongues or seen the whatever goes on in that. And, and that's mostly because whenever I hear about that, I like run the opposite direction because it <laughs> makes me feel really uncomfortable. And just like all this, like speaking in tongues, gifts of spirit, it's seen it because I, I'm talking about it with young people who I just don't respect their knowledge of scripture. And I think that they don't know what they're talking about. I don't respect my knowledge of scripture and I don't think I know what I'm talking about. So I'm not going to respect theirs and I respect more mine more than theirs. So going um, off of that, I, I, there's a lot of churches who practice this and whatnot and, and practicing speaking in tongues. Well, I always think of, uh, when Paul says in first, uh, first Corinthians 14, 27 through 28, no more than two or three should speak in tongues. They must speak at one time or one at a time. And someone must interpret what they say, but if no one is present who can interpret, they must be silent in the, in our, in your church meeting and speaking and speaking tongue or they must be silent in your church meeting and speak in tongues, uh, to God privately. And I don't see that ever happen. When people say, uh, we're speaking in tongues, but I never hear, okay, we have an interpreter and this is very orderly. It seems like Paul is saying it needs to be somewhat orderly and you need to have somebody interpreting or you just should not do it. And I'm wondering why people just kind of ignored that. Yeah. Okay. So there's, there's a bunch of issues that come up around speaking in tongues. What's the, what's the verse you just read again? Can you say? Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 27 through 28. I believe this. Yeah. So I think the first thing to say is, you know, when I was going through these controversies, when I was at university, um, I was part of a charismatic ministry and a non-charismatic ministry. And I was kind of the campus leader in both of them. They weren't very big groups. They were, you know, groups about 40 people. And um, so I found myself kind of crossways with this because the students were kind of starting to fight with each other. And I think it's important if you're leading around these issues to be really careful because if you tell everybody they can speak in tongues, more people will try to speak in tongues and seek the gift, which is good in some ways. But then there is going to be some portion of people who do not receive the gift because not everybody speaks in tongues. And then now you've implicitly hit you, everything you've said positively. Now they believe reciprocally is negatively true about them. Mm-hmm. In, including that, you know, God will give you this great gift when that now God won't give you this great gift. Or God, you know, God wants you to have this power. God doesn't want you to have, like, it's very disorienting and hurtful 
for people um, when these things don't don't happen to them. And I actually think that the gift of speaking in tongues is much less um, broadly experienced than historic charismatic teaching would want to insinuate. So, um, so if you if you talk, talk to a charismatic Christian about this, they will usually make two or three distinctions about the practice of speaking in tongues. One is speaking in tongues in the gathered church sort of as a form of prophecy in such a way as though you have the stage, right? So in first Corinthians 11, it says like one person gets up and says something. And then another person gets up and says, and then like one person will sit down because another person gets up and give way. Right. And so there's this, there's this dynamic that Paul is laying out in the gathered church of how you would get up and give prophecies. And, um, and this sounds like that sort of activity, right? Like people are getting up and sharing stuff in the church. And Paul is saying, look, it needs to be orderly. That it, If it needs to be orderly, then it's clearly a gathered meeting. Chapter 14 is about the judging of prophecies, probably related to the work of elders and so on. For example, First uh, Corinthians 14 excludes women from this process, right? Well, why is that? Women are explicitly invited to prophesy in verse 11, chapter 11. Well, it's, be, it's because the only, because elders are supposed to be doing this work, right? which is the only office in the church that is reserved for men only. And so um, so because of that, charismatics will often say um, there are multiple applications of this. Like one is like in the gathered church, you speak in tongues in such a way as that you have the floor. Then you could also be speaking in tongues kind of under your breath, not creating any kind of disorder at all. And in that case, you don't need an interpreter because right. nobody is being confused by it. And then there's also like just praying at your house in your quote prayer closet, like you by yourself, you don't, so in cases where you, you aren't speaking in tongues in such a way that you have the floor, interpretation is not needed. This passage isn't teaching that, right? Some charismatics will make a very specific distinguish, specifically distinguish between what they call speaking in tongues and what they call, quote, their prayer language. Mm -hmm. Okay. If, if all that means is speaking in tongues so that you have the floor is speaking in tongues and your prayer language is when you speak in tongues such as that you don't have the floor that it's contextual and how you're using it socially, I'm totally fine with prayer language. If it means anything else, I completely disagree that the Bible teaches there's such a thing as a prayer language. Mm -hmm. There's just no evidence of that. There's just this gift of speaking in tongues. If you have the floor, if you speak as though you have the floor, you need an interpreter. That's what it, that is what it says. I think that you could say, especially if it's clear it's creating some kind of disorder. Mm -hmm. But I think that what this is saying is it should regularly have interpretation. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I think a lot of charismatics just ignore that because they don't believe it creates a lot of chaos. But I think if you have somebody who speaks in tongues such that they have the floor, then that's the case. Now, I have heard a lot of people speak in tongues in church so that I could hear them, so that there weren't interpretations, but they didn't have the floor either. They weren't speaking in tongues for the church, mm -hmm. right? So in my, in my case, I would make a distinction between somebody singing a worship song, they're five feet to your left one pew behind you and you can hear them speaking in tongues while they're singing the worship song, but you can hear it. Mm -hmm. If you turn that person demand, they get an interpreter. I, I think that's a little pedantic, right? But if that person goes up front and the elder gives them the microphone and that, and that person speaks in tongue into the microphone for everyone and there's no interpretation, I think that's a clear violation of this text. Mm -hmm. if, if you present speaking in tongues to the church, then you should present its interpretation to the church. Otherwise, you've excluded everyone from the experience. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Is this, yeah, but do you think this passage is saying that there should be inter an interpreter like before the person starts speaking? So they shouldn't start. So they should like come up, be like, okay, I've got, I've got a tongue to share with the church. 
some interpreter should come up first? Or is this saying like, okay, they can start speaking. And then if somebody doesn't come up to interpret, they should stop speaking. Maybe that, maybe that's too granular for this particular conversation. But. Where, where, what's the verse where this literally starts? I'm sorry, I'm trying to. Um, 14, 14, 14, 27 through 28. Oh, 27. Sorry. I was looking at, I thought you said 17. Yeah. Yeah. So no, it says if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak at one time and someone must interpret. So the assumption is, is it's just like in ch- chapter 11 where people are get popping up one or two or three to prophesy. Mm-hmm. So I think this is also true for prophecy. If somebody gets, if two or three people get up and give prophecies after a couple of those, a pastor or an elder ought to get up. Yeah. And give some discerning instruction about this. Right, 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 Similarly, right. if a couple of people pop up and speak in tongues, nobody even knows what's been said, mm-hmm. right? Why? Well, because the assumption is you don't know what's being said, right? And so then somebody should come up and give an interpretation, either a prophetic interpretation, the general message of these speakings in tongues is this, or literally, let me translate, right? right? And what and, and scripture says that one of the gifts is the interpretation of tongues. Right. So there's some people who have that gift. And you wouldn't How, need nearly as many of those people as speaking in tongues people. Who though? I, like I've never met somebody like you, you. I mean, I hear a lot of people, I have the gift of speaking in tongues or healing or whatever. I never once in my life have I ever. <laughs> I have even, the interpretation of tongues. I can't yeah. speak them worth a darn, but I can interpret. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, in, so in my experience with, with the charismatic church, I have seen people get up and give interpretations. The, part of the issue is it's impossible to authenticate, right? I mean, that's that's one of the the obviously obvious issues here. If somebody gets up and says, "Here's what that tongue means," you just have to take their word for it, right? Um, you know, or decide whether or not you're going to take their word for it because you don't know what the tongue says. Um, I mean, I've heard stories of people who, who I f- believe are credible, honest people saying that they were in meetings and they heard somebody speaking tongues. Somebody got up and says, "I think it means this." And then somebody gets up from the back and says, I'm an immigrant from Central Africa. That was my tribal tongue. And that is exactly what that means. And so like, now, is that true? Did that happen? I mean, like, obviously, if you want to be, if you want to be skeptical and that's your disposition, it's very easy to disbelieve stories like that as just the kind of apocryphal story Christians would make up if they wanted to authenticate these things. And I will tell you that in practice, um, I have I have much more often felt that the that what is put forward as speaking in tongues is not speaking in tongues, and I, I I believe I mean I believe that the Lutherans are right about this that tongue means language, and it means a discernible actual language, right. and that if you're speaking in tongues you are speaking a language that is a real language. Now some charismatics will say, well, yeah, but Paul says in first Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I'm just a resounding God and cleaning symbol. Meaning therefore it must mean that you can speak in the tongues of human beings or of angels. And how can you discern whether or not a particular, you know, thing somebody's saying is maybe it's an angelic tongue. Maybe, no, you know, maybe, maybe that's it. Right. I am very skeptical about that view because Paul is clearly inflating the idea of speaking in tongues to its highest conceivable mentality so that he can say, even if you did that, but you didn't have love, you'd still be stupid. Mm-hmm. Right. So I don't think you can take from first Corinthians one and two, 13, one and two that we, that people who speak in tongues sometimes speak in the tongues of angels. First of all, mm-hmm. that might be true. It might not be true. I, you certainly can't prove it from that verse. Right. But then secondly, there's also a well-known human phenomenon within religions called glossolalia, which is a semi-ecstatic state where people, are like repeating syllables over and over and over again 
and it is like getting them into a different altered state of consciousness. You find this in like regions of Hinduism and Buddhism in some forms of Islam in lots of tribal religions in global shamanism, all that kind of stuff. And it, it's usually associated with in Christianity with demonic influence. But I think that glossolalia, which is this repetitive repeating of syllables and like a semi-linguistic kind of thing that helps you alter your state of consciousness. I think that can be done non-spiritually. I think that can be done in the human spirit and consciousness itself. So I think you can do it in a way unrelated to the Holy Spirit and in a way unrelated to demonic spirits. And when I hear people quote speaking in tongues and services where they're just saying the same syllable or couple of syllables over and over and over and over again, basically as part of prayer to kind of help them focus on prayer. I think that they're engaging in psychological glossolalia without even really knowing it. And I think it might not be a problem. I think it might just be like a way of utilizing your own human consciousness. your like your own like neurology of consciousness in a way that helps you focus. And I don't necessarily think that has anything to do with demonic spirits, but I don't think it necessarily has anything to do with the Holy spirit. Like I think when the Holy spirit teaches you a language and you receive the gift of tongues, I believe you speak an intelligible language. And a lot of speaking in tongues I hear is not a language right. by yeah, any linguistic I, set of categories that I know of. There just there isn't the kind of parts of speech functioning. It's right. like people are like, and I'm not saying that that's demonic when people do that. I think it's probably this phenomenon called glossolalia you find among all human beings in all places at all times. And it's part of altering your own state of consciousness to focus in a different kind of way and use your mind in a different kind of way that might even be helpful in prayer. I, I don't know. Yeah. I think I yeah. people think people do it because they find it helpful. I don't think it's right. the gift of speaking in tongues. And I think when it glossolalia is confused with speaking in tongues, then you don't differentiate well. And you don't really know when somebody's speaking in tongues and when they're engaging in glossolalia. And then you also don't know when there is demonic involvement. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I think this is this is something that I've, felt such a tension with and and what you're saying is helpful about gloss lately because i've because i feel persuaded too that when when he's talking about tongues in in these passages he is referring to languages like specific languages that have syntactical structure and like are linguistically evident as languages and like i i recently and people suck at making languages up that they don't know right and so like if people are just kind of trying to do it it's going to sound weird. Right. And I, I know like, so, so I've, right. I've been trying to experiment some with uh, not, not much within the last few months, but, but before that with like, okay, when I was in college, I tried, I was very interested in the idea of speaking in tongues and tried a couple times to speak in tongues and never really had any sort of experience that felt sort of like self-authenticating. Um, right. And so I've been recently couple months ago trying to like experiment with that again and right i was getting so caught up in my own head because i was like okay i'm, I'm gonna try and speak in a way that is linguistically that works and like right i had no experience where i was like okay i think i'm yeah. speaking in a kind of way that is actually like linguistic structure and i i've been listening to a listening to a podcast again recently that's specifically sort of dealing with this issue of speaking in tongues and is coming from a perspective that is like skeptical of it um, but it's talking about like, right, there's like linguistic analysis that's been done of a lot of people speaking in tongues. And it seems to have no, like, at least in the, the people that they were looking at, there wasn't a general linguistic structure. And, and right, if you look at the, 
if you look at people speaking in tongues in different regions of the world, like they're repeating syllables that are syllables from within their own sort of language. Um, so like speaking in tongues looks different in North America as it, as compared to Africa, as compared to Asia. Um, and I guess, yeah, my, something that I've felt that's been difficult is like how to treat charitably people who are, who are saying they're speaking in tongues, but who, when I look at them, I'm like, I, I don't think you're engaging in the spiritual gift that is speaking in tongues. Yeah. Like, how do you like, that's really hard. Yeah, because what people will say is, 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 is like I, I've said before, like, do you think that that's a language? Like, you're speaking a language, right? This is usually people I can I've gotten closer to, right? And they're like, well, and he, and this is why I don't like the language prayer language because what they'll say is, well, no, but it's my prayer language, right? It's my prayer language. When people say that, usually what I assume is that they're utilizing glossolalia as a psychological mechanism that helps them focus in prayer. Mm-hmm. And if I don't have if I don't have evidence to believe that it's being demonically inhabited, then I don't care. Right. Other than maybe they're saying a bunch of unintelligible things that aren't by the spirit. Because I think when you speak in tongues, the spirit is speaking a tongue. You're speak you're allowing the t- spirit to speak a tongue through you and you're you're praying specific actual things. You're saying actual things. And those are resonating in the work of prayer. I don't think that's truth glossary. I don't think you're saying anything. Mm-hmm. What I think you're doing is I think that you are quieting something in your conscious mind so that your intuitive mind can be released in prayer. Yeah. And and I think that's very important, especially for people who experience a lot of repression. I think it can help them access stuff that they need to pray about. Yeah. But I but I, I don't encourage it. Like, I, I mean, I, like I, I don't think people should do it. And so what I do is I'm just like, you know, if the shoe fits, wear it. Like, you just heard my teaching. If what you do is the clearly the glossolalia thing, then own up to it. And then decide if God wants you to do it. But I also think when you say, you know, I experimented with this a little bit, I think that's fine. Mm-hmm. I think if you sit in prayer and you pray for a while intelligib- intelligibly, and then you say, um, Holy Spirit, I I really want to speak in tongues if you want to give me that gift because I believe that it has the power to strengthen the body of Christ in me. Mm-hmm. And then you like allow your mind to be quieted and then you just speak out whatever kind of syllables might come in. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's like really stupid. I think that's totally fine. And I, I do know people who I think do credibly have the gift of speaking in tongues that received it that way. Mm-hmm. Right. In my own case, I have always wanted to like really kind of hear a really clear voice in my head before it. Cause it feels almost like prophecy, but, but speaking, cause you know, cause in prophecy, like you don't want to say stuff that's wrong. Like, cause in the old Testament, you're supposed right. to be stoned if you say stuff that's in God's name, that's wrong. Right? right. And so I, I just have a different attitude about prophecy than speaking in tongues. If you speak all kinds of nonsense, that isn't speaking in tongues. I don't think God's mad at you. If you get really arrogant about your interpretation of the gift of speaking in tongues and you start teaching it to other people based on your own weird stuff that isn't really speaking in tongues. Now you got problems. Mm -hmm. Now you're a heretic. Now you're teaching false doctrine to the body of Christ in a way that harms them. So what I would say to like college students that are experimenting with the spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues, it's fine. Experiment with it. And you might tell people what you kind of think or what you were told, but just be really careful about being authoritative and being like, well, this is the way it is. And, you know, like if you're going to do that, read first Corinthians 12 through 14, like 16 times, really carefully focusing on what it says, not what some leader you've heard says, and use that as your baseline, not your movement. And certainly not the narrative of the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. You should turn to the didactic, direct teaching of first Corinthians 12 through 14. If you do that, it'll, it'll keep you safe. 
and, and when I say through four, 12 through 14, I don't mean 12 and 14. You need to read 13 in the middle and 13 is maybe the most important, mm-hmm. right? Because it's, it's really pride that makes our misunderstandings about spiritual gifts so destructive. Mm-hmm. If we held those in humility, we could believe all kinds of wacky things and God would still bless us, you know, and we would be able to correct each other because we'd be listening to each other. So I think it's okay to experiment. Um, I think it's okay to experiment with prophecy too, as long as you're not saying, thus says the Lord. I think you can say, look, I feel this. I feel like I, I have an intuition that God is saying this. What do you guys think? Mm-hmm. If you prophesy like that, I don't think anybody should stone you. I don't think anybody should stone you, period. If, but, but like, I don't think you're being a false prophet if you're wrong, right? Mm-hmm. But as time goes on, as you become more confident in what God is saying through you and you under, and you can recognize it, I think you can operate with more confidence in a prophetic ministry. And I think that that's true for any of these ministries. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So you kind of, I guess I was going to ask one more question. You kind of answered it, but we can kind of close with this. And like I said earlier, we're going to try to get, get, get Tom on well, soon. Is the if question you want, I could say something really inflammatory to like. Make Tom come spot. On. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I have a, I have a quick question. Andy, okay. if, if yours is going to be like a closing question, I, I'm just curious about this. I I haven't looked into this myself, but Nick, do you know anything about like the history throughout the church of speaking in tongues? Like, because it, I mean, it seems to me that it's ta- that it has taken sort of like a new prominence in yeah. the charismatic movement that's starting in the 19th century or like late or like late 19th century, early 20th, early or well. Yeah, part of the part of the struggle with this is well, I mean, one of the reasons why cessationists argue that speaking in tongues ceased at the canonization of the new Testament is because there's virtually no reference to it in the entire history of the church after that mm-hmm. until the Azusa street. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a, there's a little bit of reference to it. There's some strange things that happened during the first great awakening. There's a, there's some references to things that could be speaking in tongues um, in the, uh, the, the Hernhut revival and also in the um, Count Zinzendorf revival that John Wesley then, participated in and it was part of the the is the moravian revival um so there there are some situations in which there's there's some stuff that i think could be but like when you um when you hear charismatics teaching about the history of speaking in tongues they don't they don't talk about aquinas or augustine or like like uh, or any of the saints really i I mean it's really from acts to azusa street right in like 19 whatever it was so so yeah in that sense it having a heavy emphasis on speaking in tongues is a historical, right? Mm-hmm. Um, however, it, you know, what, you, what you're going to get when you say that though, is people are going to give you a restorative argument, mm-hmm. you know, just because the church lost something for right. a long time doesn't mean the word of God can't give it back to us. Right. right. Like similar to, right. Just because we maybe lost the gospel of justification until Martin Luther doesn't mean that. Right. Doesn't mean that it didn't exist. Yeah. Right. I mean, I would say we probably lost the, doctrine of justification for a shorter period of time than that. Um, you know, because, because I think that uh, there's a, th- th- there's a book called the justification reader by Thomas Oden, where he talks about the doctrine of justification in the church fathers through till the eighth or ninth century. Right. right. And I, I think he's correct that yes, they didn't formulate it exactly like Luther, right. but the idea of propitiation that he died for our sins, that mm-hmm. he stood in our stead and we've received his righteousness and, that's all in the church fathers. Right. right. And, but, but I've read hundreds of pages of the church fathers and there's no reference to speaking in tongues. Hardly. Mm-hmm. There, there are a few references. I think there's a reference in the apostolic constitutions, 
but vir- virtually none. And so, yeah, that does give some people some pause about about this. But but my response is, well, that's why our church is continuationist, but continuationist, but not really charismatic. Is mm-hmm. I'm not going to make this a central idiom of our ministry because I don't think that's what the New Testament teaches. But at the same time, when you read when you read like First Corinthians, it's very difficult to see these gifts as non-prominent. Clearly in Corinth, these were very prominent gifts, right? But then at the same time, he discusses them almost nowhere else. Mm-hmm. Like you read the rest of Paul's epistles and the other general epistles, and speaking in tongues is hardly mentioned. Mm-hmm. So some people have wondered whether or not there's a particularly ecstatic or charismatic focus in Corinth, and Paul was trying to like regulate it but that we shouldn't norm first Corinthians. Cause I mean, it is true. If you look at all the churches in the new Testament, Corinth was one of the most screwed up churches. Mm. So you do have to be a little careful about how you norm all the stuff in first Corinthians. You know? <laughs> right. But at the same time, what you, what you do notice in first Corinthians is as like what the Corinthians were going to prostitutes and Paul just regulates. He goes, don't go to prostitutes. Mm-hmm. And there's no problem forbidding something they shouldn't be doing at all. Right. When he gets to speaking in tongues and prophecy, he says, these are all gifts of the spirit that he gives deliberatively, you should seek them and you should use them this way. So there's no, there's no inkling that he's trying to like diminish them. He's trying to expand them, but he's trying to make sure they do them in love. So I I also think that's important to recognize. So again, balance, 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 right? Right. Don't let your desire, your natural inclination for a simplistic answer draw you to one thing so that you can feel like you're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. That's helpful. Okay. So yeah, this this closing question kind of um for for young believers and I guess all like all believers, um, how much should we focus on these gifts and like miraculous signs and that kind of stuff rather than focusing on like scripture and like the actual true proof of Jesus went like in our faith, because I think that like, like my biggest issue with all this, and we'll probably talk about it more in the charismatic church one is that people focus on all these gifts and, and like, like there's not a ton of um, scripture isn't super specific on these I, things. Yeah. Um, and so how much should we focus on that rather than just focusing on, well, what we do know is specific are, you know, we need to kill our sins and we need to become more like Christ and these kind of things rather than focusing on the gift. Sure. But Andy, just be, just be careful in the way you're asking that, the way you're asking that question. I mean, you're asking that question with a, with a bit of bias. You're saying, okay, should we focus on the gifts or should we focus on the things we know? Jesus. Yeah. (laughs) No, that's not, I might have said it like that, and I say it like that because my my people my age, right? I think they need to hear it like but that. But so so, oh. I mean, like so, my experience as when I was a young believer was it was in reading First Corinthians that I was like, I should I should experiment with some of these gifts. So it was because of it was like because of my reading the scripture that I was trying to earnestly seek some of those things, and I think that was a I think that was a good thing to do, but. But you should, but but don't you think it should be done with counsel? That's what I'm saying. It, it like like you should talk through it with someone. Mm-hmm. Doing this on your own can lead to confusion and can draw you away from Christ, which is what I've seen happen with uh, a decent amount of younger people. And I, I'm all for practicing and, and getting to know what your spiritual gifts are, and I, I'm all for that. But there's got to be some sort of counsel or people that you talk to about it. 
Yeah, I mean, the context in these chapters is that this is all happening in the worship service of the gathered church. And in and in this, the assumption in chapter four, it never actually says it, but I think the only way to understand it properly with the other scriptures in the New Testament is that it's being overseen by elders. The whole thing is being overseen by elders, mm-hmm. which is one of the things that can get sideways in college ministries because college ministries don't have operative elders. Mm-hmm. They have staff workers. Staff workers aren't elders. They're just not. They're not pastors and they're not elders. They're, they're ministry workers and they're ministers and their job is really important. And they're doing incredibly important stuff. But if I was going to classify them according to the New Testament, I'd probably call them evangelists, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's usually the training that they get. They they usually don't have pastoral training. They usually have evangelism training, like an evangelist mm-hmm. training. And so over, and, and they're also usually often really young, right? And they're, and they're not elders in their churches. And so, so this, when I say this, I'm not saying to put down staff workers at all. I think staff workers do a great work. I'm, I'm really encouraged to see students doing that at least for a period of their ministry. I think it's a great way to cut your teeth in ministry for people who are going to become pastors or missionaries later. So I, I, I love staff workers. I went through university ministry without a staff worker and it was so hard and I would have done anything to have a staff worker. Okay. But what they do in the oversight of elders intergenerationally and deliberatively from decades of experience in the local church, there should be a big difference. There isn't always, but there should be. And so, so sometimes I think experimenting with these within college ministries can get problematic, but I don't think it needs to. I think if people are pursuing the truth with humility, recognizing that the Holy spirit gives all the gifts out just as he pleases, then we should expect the Holy Spirit to be infusing and empowering many things in our lives. Like Aquinas said it this way, that grace perfects nature, right? Like whether or not John is right, that the word of wisdom and word of knowledge are ways of saying the spirit empowers normal things. Certainly it means that when it refers to things like the gift of administration or the gift of helps or the gift of encouragement, right? Or the gift, you know, in those cases, definitely, we're being told the Holy Spirit empowers things that would seem normal otherwise, yeah. or things that were natural to our temperament. For most people, a number of their spiritual gifts are going to be traits of their personality that the Holy Spirit is bringing in line with the gospel, bringing in line with the kingdom of God and empowering further. And it's not going to seem spiritual at all. Right. And so, um, especially if John is right in interpreting the verse in chapter 12, that if it says words of knowledge and words of wisdom, through or by the spirit, if that refers to just normal words of statements of wisdom, Paul is saying, yeah, but even those are empowered by the spirit, right? You just have to learn to recognize that. Mm -hmm. So I think for most Christians, you should expect nature to um, grace to perfect nature, that the Holy Spirit's work in you is going to bring to its full power and usefulness, something that's already present in your nature, right? Additionally, though, there will be there will be times where you will experience some of these things that turn back the curse in a different way, like healing, speaking in tongues, prophecy, and so on. I also think it's important, especially for younger people, to recognize that like working miracles does not it's not like a get out of jail free card. Like it doesn't do stuff other things don't do. Like people who have miracles happen to them oftentimes don't believe. Like this has happened at high point where people have had miracles happen to them who aren't believers. And I, and I say to them, listen, you need to understand that in the scriptures, God did this miracle, not just so that you could be relieved of whatever he did it so that you would believe in him and be saved. That's why he did this miracle. And they say, yeah. And then they never come to faith 
Um, one of my good friends in seminary, they had a woman in her, their church who had stage four breast cancer and like was on death's door. She was dying, right? And she went to like a revival meeting or whatever. She got prayed for for healing and she got just miraculously healed. And three, four months later, she got new breast implants, left her husband and ran off with another guy. There was a person at High Point Church um, struggling with terrible debilitating migraines, got healed, abandoned that person's family and child, and is now doing what they want and saying that God is with them and doing it. And so like, don't think that because these gifts are operating and because people are being touched by them, that they are sort of like immune or it's going to get you past the standard dynamics of temptation and faith and belief and trust and facing doubt and all that stuff. It's not like if God gives you the gift of speaking in tongue, I see one of the reasons why a lot of young people want the gift of speaking in tongues and prophecy is because they want it to help them overcome doubt. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I think it's been a little, but I don't think that it in the, in the end changes the dynamic with doubt. Because you think, I don't think that that's why they want it. I think that they want it because they want to feel important and like they want to prove their connection with God to everybody else yeah. through that. Sure. And I, think yeah, well, you, like, I mean, in the, in the sanctification process, you can start out assuming that almost every human motivation is going to start with either pride or fear. Yes. I mean, that's the whole reason God has called them to the gospel is yeah. so that they would release those as their main motivations and be moved by the motivations of the kingdom and of its Christ. And so, yeah, I I mean, I expect people who are young in their sanctification for their spiritual motivations to get terribly entwined with their fleshly motivations and that they, they, that's going to get confused and convoluted and mixed up in their pursuing of the spiritual gifts. I don't think God's going to reject them because of that. But sometimes I think that God won't give you a gift you're seeking that he does want to give you because a big part of your motivation is pride or fear. Mm -hmm. Because giving you that gift would be really harmful to you, mm. you know. Yeah, or he does, and he lets you screw things up real bad. Mm-hmm. Maybe sometimes, but I, I mean, I th- but I do think that God is is gonna be kind, and so I think that if the gift of prophecy will destroy you, either you've already crossed over to a point of judgment where He gives you a gift so that you can confirm your judgment, which I think is very rare. Or what the person is operating in isn't a gift of the spirit. Like if somebody's operating in a lot of pride in their like quote gift of prophecy, it may just be that they're not operating gift of prophecy. They're just saying what comes into their intuitive mind as though it's the word of the Lord and they don't realize the difference. And so that's why, that's why I think, especially in your earlier years of faith, these sorts of things, your activity with them should be somewhat experimental and you should do it with a lot of humility. And only after years of practice and use and, confirmation i'm speaking specifically specifically about prophecy right now um that you should be like okay i I i'm a prophet i give prophetic words god speaks through me it's a thing Mm -hmm. as opposed to being like hey i feel like god is saying this what do you guys think etc the one of the ways the charismatic movement has tried to like make this less destructive is to say prophecies should be affirming and encouraging and exhorting. So you should be sharing something positive and helpful. And if it's not that, it's not prophecy and you shouldn't be doing it. I actually don't think that's a good interpretation of scripture. Yeah, I agree. 
And so I do think it's helpful pastorally to keep young people or people who are inexperienced who are experimenting with prophecy from being like, I think you're going to have an affair. I think God's saying you're going to have an affair, like, like weirding it up or saying things that are really harmful or what sometimes happens is like, I had a guy, there was a guy who came to Alexi and I, when we were in college, when we were engaged, we were about two months from getting married and he prophesied that we shouldn't get married. Mm. Right. He's like 21. Okay. Like I knew and my wife knew that he had had a crush on her for like three years. <laughs> right. And so like, we were like, mm, thank you. Yeah. We're, we're, we'll pray about that. But like, hey. we were like, dude, you have no idea what's motivating this in you. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's very evident to us, but not to you. And so, um, so hopefully he wasn't right. You know, um, cause we could have had a crush on Alexi for three years and still been speaking in the word of the Lord. And, you know, we've been in disobedience ever since, but I, I don't think so. I think that he was just, didn't know his motivations and whatever. So like, dang dude. So, when, he's got- so, so, so some charismatic leaders have basically said, don't prophesy prophecies like that. That's not what prophecy, but in doing so, they've basically said, that's not what prophecy is. Well, what happens when somebody has a genuine gift of prophecy that's been practiced? And now God wants to expand the kind of words that they're giving, including maybe a negative one. Like our church needs to repent or we need to do blah, 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 or mm-hmm. you need to stop doing that or right. Then what now, now that's not even legitimate, right? When in the Bible, prophecy is hardly ever encouraging. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like the, right. you have to believe in a very serious discontinuity between the old and new testaments to think that mm-hmm. because most prophecy in the old Testament is rebuke, right? Well, no, no, this, me, so you're going to die. Right. Okay. Let me, let me actually, that's not actually true. Okay. Most prophecy in the narrative books of the old Testament, where we're told a story where somebody goes up and gives a prophecy. In most of those cases, the prophecy is negative in the prophetic books of the Bible, like Isaiah, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of negative, but there's also a lot of really sweet and beautiful stuff right. as you read through the prophets. But it's both. And there's almost like you would book them at Malachi. There's some beautiful promises and, and things like that or in Hosea. But there's also some really terrible, negative, you're screwing up and sinning. And I actually think that the prophetic ministry, if it's going to operate as a real spiritual gift, is supposed to be a curing. It's, I think it's supposed to be a somewhat confrontative ministry. And if you say, if you take that away and you basically turn the prophetic ministry into the spiritual gift of encouragement, because I, I think that's what happens in, in third wave charismaticism is if when you teach prophecy is always just encouraging and it, like that kind of stuff, it's always positive, always encouraging. You basically have taken the gift of encouragement and you've made it the gift of prophecy, except you're encouraging people to use their intuitive mind for encouragement. And then you're calling that prophecy. And I just think that's wrong. I, I, biblically, logically, rationally, but I think pastorally it's helpful because when you get a small group of, of charismatics together and you say, this is what prophecy is in the New Testament, and then they only say things that are encouraging and supportive, right? Then basically what you have is, like, I don't know if you've ever been in like Christian camp where everybody like sits around and like says nice things to people and it like really encourages them, right? It's a really nice thing. And I think that's what you turn prophecy into. Which is, I think, really, really godly. I think doing that is a really godly thing. I just think you're calling it something it isn't. It's not prophecy. It's like intuitive encouragement session. It's like encouragement, exhortational support times. And you're making like this spiritual support group thing and you're calling it prophecy. I have no doubt that while that's happening, 
grace is perfecting nature and the Holy Spirit is moving in it and helping people, encourage people, maybe prophetically. It's not that the Spirit can't do that. I just think analytically, as you analyze, like, what is what here? That's not the limits of the gift of prophecy and not its normal operation in the New Testament. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. So I think it's it's important to recognize that just because somebody's doing something wrong doesn't mean it's bad. I think there's a lot of people who have been incredibly strengthened and, and encouraged by what I would call spiritual encouragement support sessions that are being called prophecy. And I think it's confusing to them to call prophecy when it's not, that's not mainly what prophecy is. There is something, some prophetic words in there, but I don't think prophecy is what that is. Mm -hmm. But I think it's enormously beneficial and very Christian and gospel centered and loving. And I think Jesus glories in it when we say true, earnest, encouraging and loving things to each other. And if in order to get us past our repressive inability to encourage each other fluently, we have to create a like a false idea of what prophecy is to actually do what Jesus says we should naturally do. Well, God bless us, everyone. Maybe the Lord is using that in his providence to do a, a, a great good. You know what I mean? So I, I think we got to always just be careful. Like there is a spirit of critic. There's a spirit of like pride in the spiritual gift thing on the charismatic side, but there's a spirit of like, cynical criticism you're doing it wrong your doctrine's wrong that can come out on the like the bible studying like non-charismatic evangelical side of things and both of those are poisonous for different reasons one is like the liberal kind of poisonous and the other is the conservative kind of poisonous and we have to try to stay both in the mind of christ and in step with the spirit and there has to be a certain kind of mysticism to christian faith because of the, the centrality of the spirit in the New Testament doctrine, doctrine of salvation. If the spirit isn't a huge part of your theology, it, your theology is wrong. And it's in some, in some meaningful sense, godless. And that's not a good theology of God <laughs> to, to be, to be Trinitarianly disruptive, like disrupted like that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. Okay. So, we're going to talk about this more in a different one because there's a lot of stuff here, but I got to go to work. And You have uh, a job? I, I have a real-life job. I, would, I, have to I wouldn't work. think with all this podcasting you would need one. I, I would no, figure I the monetizing know. would. This pays well, the well, he's going into the, into the Optive headquarters. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> my, right. That's, right. that's what with, I mean. To meet with sponsors. Right. Yeah, so let me, I, w- I want to say two more sentences. Um, because we have people at High Point from Crew and InterVarsity and Navigators and Chi Alpha, and I don't give I don't give a crap what people are saying out there about you guys arguing with each other and disagreeing with each other. That like the will of God is that you would be one body under one baptism, one faith. You you come to the same Lord's Supper. You partake in the same Spirit. Do not let anyone divide you in Christ for any reason. These gifts of the Spirit are an idiomatic part of the ministry of God that are not even mentioned in some books of the Bible and are mentioned prominently and we're demanded to seek them in others. You have to allow yourself to come to a kind of balance and honesty and humility that you do not allow anyone to divide you on campus. Because unity is a huge part of the ministry of making Jesus look good. And there cannot be infighting. 
You just need to be like, look, they do it different. They do it di-. like and when if you go to Chi Alpha, it's going to be different there, and it's fine. And when you go to Crew, it's going to look different there. You can go to both of them. It's fine. Just be a little flexible, and you may be a little less enthused about one or the other. But do not allow yourself to get judgmental or persnickety or nitpicky about people who are adult children. Like they're like they're still figuring out what it means to be an adult and define themselves as an adult human being. And they're going to do a lot of stupid things and say a lot of stupid things. And they're going to act in stupid ways and they're going to be uninformed and they're working it out. And like be kind to each other and to everyone else. If you can't obey Ephesians 4, you're not obeying 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And you are, in order to live out 1 Corinthians 12, you are utterly rejecting 1 Corinthians 13. It is totally wrong. And so love and humility and unity and oneness have to be always operative by everyone as you figure out how to walk in step with the Spirit in the local church and in the body of Christ, which should always lead to increased worship and devotion to God and increased sanctification that leads to increased love of neighbor. If those three things are operative, then the spirit is working among a people. I don't care if they're speaking in tongues or not. Speaking in tongues, prophecy serves an increase of worship and devotion, an increase of sanctification and godliness, and an increase of loving one's neighbor sacrificially. That is the test. Nothing else. And where that exists, and in, in the in Jesus is proclaimed as Lord, the Spirit of Christ dwells. And so, just don't let even if even if it's a staff worker that's that's speaking words of division of of any side of this, like they're wrong, and they need to stop doing that. And I I've, and I, I I'm speaking to no one because I have no idea what's going on, but I just know that pride can just well up and then. And then what Freud called the bigotry of small differences start to rise up. The people who are a little different of us, we see them as the biggest betrayers. And like, we think that the little thing we do different is what really makes it work. And it gets really ugly. And that is the playground of Satan, not the spirit. I just think you, you've got to get that straight. Otherwise you might as well just stop. Yeah. All right. That makes sense. Okay. Um, that's it for today. Uh, we'll be back soon with some more on this probably Uh, make sure to follow and subscribe. Give us those five stars, smash that like button. You know, the drill. Um, And we will see you guys soon. Just make comments like I want more John Sakatowski or something. something like that. Yeah. (laughs) He's getting married next week. So fun. All right. We'll see you guys soon. Bye.